Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight it is August 15th of 2013. Our guest tonight is Dr. Peter Ferenczi. Uh, he'll be talking to us about harm reduction. He'll be talking to us about his book, about... Um, What's wrong with addiction treatment? And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is called uh, hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting alcohol altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is Dr. Peter Ferenczi. He's the author of Dealing with Addiction, Why the 20th Century Was Wrong. He's with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Peter? I'm doing well. How are you, Ken? I'm doing great. I read your book. It's very interesting. Um, one of the first things, well, your first chapter is about the idea of hitting bottom and why that is a problem. So tell us, what's wrong with that notion? Okay. I will, um, I'll start with something, a glaring example that many people can understand. Now, the governing ideology is that if you are not ready to kick, say you have a habit, crack, booze, crystal meth, whatever, if you're not ready to kick, it's because you haven't hit your bottom, you haven't suffered enough degradation. Uh, let's take a working girl on the street. She sells herself, say she's anywhere from 15 to 28 years old. She sells herself to keep her habit going. This woman is going to experience sexual assault, physical assault, beatings. Uh, if she hasn't hit her bottom yet, what does that suggest? that she needs to get beat up more, that she needs to, a worse rape? Are we seriously suggesting that this kind of treatment will render a woman, any woman, less likely to get high? I tell you, Ken, if something like that happened to me, I'd probably be high real soon, and I haven't been high in quite a while. Well, it kind of reminds me of, you know, in the Middle Ages, they thought that uh, people who were mentally ill were possessed with demons, and the cure, if you beat them enough, the demons would leave. Well, um, last I checked, it didn't work. Um, it wasn't you know, successful. You yeah. know, I can give you a little bit of his. You know what? I'm going to use one more example to really bring this home because this is something people can relate to. Let's take two tobacco smokers. Let's say each person has a 30 cigarette a day habit. Now, one smoker is happily married, happy at work. The other one is going through a divorce and can't stand his or her job. They're both trying to quit. I think you know and I know and our listeners know that the happy camper has a better chance of quitting than the one who's struggling with a divorce and is having a horrible time at work. The point is, when you are closer to a bottom, you are less likely to kick. Yeah, I think there's a lot of research that shows the more resources you have intact, the greater your chances of success at getting over an addiction. That's correct. That's correct. Um, social support is a good predictor. In other words, if you have not been abandoned by family and friends, you, and if everything else is equal, you're a better candidate for recovery. Um, cognitive functioning is good. Um, and status, job, social status, prestige, things like that, all um, are, in fact, good predictors of success in recovery. 
take all that stuff away from somebody and the person will statistically be less likely to get better. But you know, one way to really bring this point home is to think of it historically. Isn't it true that a hundred years ago, if your son flunked out of law school, people would have said that maybe it's because you didn't beat him enough, kick his butt hard enough, often enough when he was a kid? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Isn't it the, wasn't the governing wisdom that children are improved by beatings, even by insults? Mm-hmm. Wasn't the governing wisdom uh, a long time ago, not only that a man had a right to hit his wife, but they actually used to say that you improve the woman by beating her. And the servant, the slave, so-and-so needs a whooping. You know, everybody on the wrong end of a power relation, the child, the woman, the servant, the slave, the working class person, was always said to be made better by, to be improved by, beating, degradation, anything that's bad. Typically, if you're on the wrong end of a power relation, the governing wisdom would say not only that you deserve a whooping and a beating, but that it's good for you, it will improve you. Mm-hmm. One by one, our civilization has been getting rid of these notions, but we didn't do it fairly across the board. But today, not too many people are going to say that women, children, and minorities, etc., gays, require this. But the drug addict still is viewed with the same kind of lens that was projected upon so many others not too long ago. The ideology of hitting bottom is, in fact, the tail end of a whole culture of punishment and degradation. You see, one group at a time, we've been getting over these attitudes, and now the drug addict is due. Yeah, I, I agree with that. On the other <coughs> hand, um, you know, if there if there is no negative consequence to drug use and if people are just enjoying it well actually they don't have a reason to quit and then again why should they quit fair enough um you know remember people people usually don't um, go to treatment and they don't go to meetings if whatever they're doing is working for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah negative consequences are a part of what is going to make somebody change but let's just get logical here. If um, some pain is necessary to make somebody kick an addiction, that does not on its own prove that if the person isn't ready, more pain, more degradation has to be the answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We grant that pain is a necessary ingredient, yeah. And frankly, um, whether um, somebody is um, drinking or using drugs or gambling, if that person is not destroying his or her life and the lives of those around them, I don't really consider that to be my business. You know, as an expert, I'm there only if you think you have a problem. Yeah, it brings in the whole question of recreational drug use. And certainly in the United States, we cannot recognize uh, recreational drug use as a person's right. They have to either be punished or treated, even if it's not causing them a problem. Well, it's um, it's unfortunate Um and and I'll give you a good example of what these unfortunate these um, messages can entail, the effects they can have. Now, today most people understand that marijuana on its own isn't going to make somebody go psycho. But you know, in the 1960s and the 1970s, the powers that be 
we're saying some pretty silly things. There's no such thing as casual marijuana use. It's all bad, bad, bad. Well, every teenager out there, and most of them were smoking weed, you know, during that time. It was a time when um, young people were doing a lot of that. They quickly understood that the authorities, school teachers, parents, social workers, politicians, had lied to them. Mm-hmm. Later, in the 1970s, speed, injectable speed, amphetamine, started to become popular. And that drug is a killer. And when these same authorities started telling young people about the dangers of speed, guess what happened? A lot of kids didn't buy it. They've been lying to us about weed for all these years. Why should we believe them now? Mm-hmm. And what we saw was a very high and easily preventable rate of speed addiction. We're talking about people who lose all the, who lose, you know, 20% of their body weight. Their teeth get weak. Their teeth fall out. It's a horrible addiction. And if the authorities would have had any credibility at all, we wouldn't have seen that tragedy. But because they were talking such nonsense about marijuana use, well, the kids just weren't interested. I mean, you lie to a teenager three, four times in a row. After that, you don't have much credibility, do you? Yeah, it's the classic story of the boy that boy who cried wolf, you know. Yeah, it is that. It is that. And, you know, whether, you know, illegal drugs are harder to talk about rationally because of their illegal status. Mm-hmm. But most people who use illegal drugs do so without incident. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the same with alcohol. Most people who drink do not become hardcore alcoholics. Most people who drink don't wrap their car around a telephone pole. And most people who gamble might go to the casino and lose $100, but they don't play away their homes. Um, but when we have, what all we have is a start, just say no message. We are unable to give young people, especially, the kind of messages they could use. They're going to be doing this kind of stuff anyways, but if you are going to do it, here's how you would do it safely. We have started finally to make inroads in this area, telling people to shoot safe, don't share needles. So if you are going to shoot up, at least don't share needles. Get a clean needle. Now, for the longest time, we couldn't even we couldn't even do that. You know, needles were taken away from people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, it's um, there's too much hysteria, far too much hysteria surrounding um all the illegal drugs right now. And it really started in the early 20th century. You know, in the 19th century, opium and other drugs were readily available. Some people had a problem, most people didn't. But um, it was in the early 20th century with the move to um, also ban alcohol, which happened as well, that uh, a lot of politics, racial politics, played into it, leaving us with the scenario we have today. War on drugs was something that began in the early 20th century. It was repeated by the Nixon administration, then the Reagan administration. It hasn't done us a lot of good. Over 50,000 dead over prohibition-related violence in Mexico alone over the last six years. I don't Mm -hmm. call that a good solution. I don't think so either. Um, I mean, I'm going to come right back to that. I want to just say one thing. I mean, I believe that people should have the right to use any any of these drugs recreationally recreationally if 
that's what they want to do, but they should also be well informed that some are a lot more problematic than others. I mean, heroin's more problematic than marijuana. Cigarettes are really bad. Um, that's really one to stay away from. But I, I mean, if they were all legalized, I wouldn't be wanting to do all of them, or actually none of them. I, I tell you, I wouldn't want to be doing a lot of drugs that are legal. And uh, um, and if these drugs became legal, I wouldn't run out and start doing them myself. Um, one thing, though, we should keep in mind, Ken, just for the sake of um, clarity, um, if any moves were made in the direction of legalization today, they would be very cautious moves. For example, antibiotics are legal, but you can't just walk into a grocery store and get them. You mm -hmm. need a script from a doctor. If we were to talk about legalizing many of these drugs, the scenario of a child walking into a candy store and walking out with a bunch of crack that's just not going to happen. They would be very strictly controlled. So oh, at least, at least you could put the gangsters out of business and give people decent information. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, anybody that works in, with school children knows very well that uh, the kids have a hard time getting a hold of alcohol or cigarettes, but marijuana is easy. <laughs> That's right. Yes, it's, it's true. Um, I've written articles about that in the Huffington Post, for example. I have written about that, and and that's right. Um, you know, when when a drug is legal, we have legal safeguards. It's not perfect. If a 15-year-old is hell-bent on getting drunk, the kid's going to find a way. But you know and I know that when we were 15, to get alcohol, you had to do a few backflips. When was mm -hmm. the last time anybody needed fake ID to buy grass? If you're 12 years old, every illegal drug you want is just one 13-year-old away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, these safeguards you have on legal substances aren't perfect, but we did something. We make it a little bit harder for kids to get their hands on alcohol and cigarettes. They have no trouble at all buying crack, seed, crystal meth, marijuana, because the illegal underground market does not care about age of majority. It doesn't respect any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about prohibition and how it got started. And I mean, it started as a tax law, and then it wound up putting people in prison. And how did that work? Well, they used the tax law for complex legal reasons because of a host of legalities. The easiest way to do it was to call was to pass a uh, the, Harrow, the Harrison Tax Act in the United States. Um, Treasury agents had a lot to do with it. Um, this is, these are complex legal issues. For instance, even when they got Al Capone, they could never get him for all the people he killed, but they were able to get him for tax evasion. So for the sake of legalities and a whole bunch of stuff, that's how it played out. But you know, opium was pretty well a socially acceptable drug. I mean, in the early 20th century, if you were a young man, and you wanted to marry some woman and you talked to her parents, you would have been better off talking about your opium smoking or about your cocaine use than about your beer and your whiskey drinking. Mm -hmm. Because alcohol was the biggest demon around in the public eye at the time. Things changed fast. Um, Chinese on the West Coast used opium. And when um, their labor became superfluous, a lot of them were building railroads. Anti-Chinese sentiment got hooked into anti-opium sentiment. 
And that's when the anti-opium figures really took off. Which doesn't mean that opium has no dangers. Yeah, heroin can be dangerous, just like alcohol. But it took a lot of racist sentiment to get us excited over opium. At the time, until then, the anti-alcohol movement was way bigger. Cocaine was pretty well acceptable. Coca-Cola had cocaine in it in the early 20th century. You probably heard about that. Mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes was a very respectable, fictitious character. And yeah, he um, he was shooting cocaine. Right before he'd say, elementary, my dear Watson, he'd do some coke. Um, but um, racial politics were complex in the southern U.S., And um, because many blacks in the South had no access to alcohol because of local prohibitory statutes, cocaine was the drug of choice for many. And during a time of um, segregation laws, lynchings, disempowerment of blacks all around, cocaine was demonized. It was associated with a certain visible minority. In fact, rumor even had it that um, blacks on cocaine could withstand 32 caliber bullets. So a lot of um, Florida state troopers and others switched to 38s for that reason. That's the kind of hysteria that got this stuff off the ground. Now, having said all of this, I don't mean to say that these drugs are not dangerous on their own. Yes, they are. But it took a lot of racism, a lot of history, a lot of politics to get us to focus in such a negative way on these particular drugs. What we did throughout the 20th century was give alcohol and tobacco a free ride and completely vilify the other drugs. Some balance is in order. Alcohol is just as dangerous as any other drug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, if you're looking for a drug that's going to cause somebody to beat his or her wife or their kids, alcohol is your biggest culprit. Mm-hmm. And then if we look at the number one killer worldwide of all drugs, that has to be tobacco. It would have to be tobacco. And um, again, you know, to give you an example of how much harm the pure abstinence message can cause, has caused and continues to cause, right now, and this is personal, I am using electronic cigarettes. Mm-hmm. What they do is they give me some nicotine, no tar, and all the other chemicals are gone. Nicotine itself is a minor health hazard. Since I made the switch, my lung capacity has improved. I'm much healthier. But these are only starting to become available now. Had the governing mindset not been stuck on a pure abstinence approach to addiction, something like this would have been available 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And think of how many people who died of cancer would not have died. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a huge fan of electronic cigarettes. It's not the method I use to quit, but I know a lot of people that have succeeded. But, you know, the FDA fought tooth and nail to block them. Yep, yeah, the FDA did. And um, we're dealing with them. It's tradition. There's a lot of religious sentiment, religious politics. These are bad things that people shouldn't do. You can talk about health until the cows come home. We're talking about taxes on sin, we're talking about religious currents, and now if somebody could actually find a way to make his or her habit harmless and still keep it up, that would infuriate a lot of people. 
because people in their heart of hearts think that you shouldn't get away with it. You should suffer. Yeah, you're not supposed to enjoy your substances unless you suffer. Yeah. Um, methadone has saved lives. It has curtailed infection. It keeps people out of jail. Un formerly unemployable heroin addicts are able to get jobs, go to school, raise their families. But because they still are dependent on a substance, many, many North Americans cannot accept it as a solution. This isn't a scientific argument, it's a moralistic argument. Mm -hmm. Partially based in religion, partially based in no age-old conceptions of free will. If you um, have a habit of any kind, then you're not truly free, that's a problem. But um, we are starting to get more practical, finally starting to. But really the biggest hurdle, you know, is, does involve a lot of moralistic attitudes. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to then address, uh, talk a little bit about treatment, about, the, you know, the standard available treatment in North America is still based on the 12 steps. There are more alternatives now. Uh, than there were 10 years ago, but uh, it's it's still the most common. And how effective is that? Well, you know, although some people will swear by the 12 steps and everything else, if they think it's helping them power to and keep it up, one thing that um, the treatment industry doesn't want you to know is that um, if you take a um, typical sample of addicts, alcoholics, whatever, a treatment sample, say a hundred of them, and you watch how they progress, you might see, you know, 5% of them clean after two years, give or take. Mm -hmm. And you take a hundred comparable subjects who go through no treatment at all. The control sample, the non-treatment sample, typically does almost as well as the treatment sample. Mm -hmm. Best evidence we have right now would suggest that people change when they're ready. That all treatment can really do is give a tweak or a nudge to a process that is, for the most part, independent of treatment efforts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, they don't want to tell you this, but I mean, I'm an historian of addiction, among other things. And I can tell you that people have been kicking their habits since the dawn of time. And your chances, if you, in 1905, when there was no AA and we didn't have the treatment system we have in place today. If you had a habit, whether it was alcohol or cocaine or opiates, your chances of kicking back then were about the same as they are right now. We haven't done too much to change that. You know, medical history helps a little bit on this. I mean, for the longest time, you know, people didn't understand that the flu went away for natural reasons. We had no cure for it, but doctors would give you whatever. And you got better and you thanked your doctor and you thought you knew what worked for you. Mm -hmm. In a similar fashion, um, the treatment industry, to a large extent, just plain sells snake oil to people. I mean, I have nothing against treatment, but um, it's questionable whether it does nearly as much as it claims to do. Well, I was kind of, you know, I look back, I'm kind of shocked at my first encounters with treatment now. You know, I was drinking 
way too much. I was definitely alcohol dependent according to the DSM standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I was suffering severe depression. I, you know, I was clearly self-medicating a lot of things. I was socially isolated. And you know, I thought if I went into treatment, that I would get treatment for the underlying causes that were driving the alcohol use that I knew were there. And instead, you know, I got told, well, you need to surrender to God. And if you surrender to God, God will cure your disease. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the thing about those um that solution, I mean, is that some people will improve after they're told that. And the ones who don't are simply told that they didn't pray properly or they didn't surrender properly. So our successes count, our failures don't, and our success rate by definition is 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you wanted somebody to um, address some of your underlying issues, and they didn't do that for you. No, not really. No. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, but um, you found a way. I found a way eventually. You know, the worst problem with treatment for me was that they convinced me that I had a disease of addiction, and I believed that after I left treatment. Um, somehow I didn't ever totally believe it, but it must have been in my subconscious because it kept me stuck in addiction for about 10 more years. And I finally just totally rejected the idea and said, you know, if I want to change my drinking, I'm going to have to do this myself because there's no magic cure out there. No, there isn't. And um, that's unfortunate, but... um that happens a lot. Uh, you were told that you have a disease. I guess that demoralized you, and you kept it up for a long time, and maybe that wasn't necessary. Yeah, you know, if I have if I have a cold, I can't, you know, will myself not to have a cold. If I have a cancer, I can't will my tumors to stop growing. You know, if I believe I have a disease of addiction I've, and there's no willpower <laughs> that works, <laughs> that's not going to help either. And then I, yeah. deci- I decided finally one day, you know, I'm the one that's in charge. These are voluntary muscles that I use to lift these glasses. Well, first I have to make the money. I have to buy the booze. I have to, you know, pour it out of the bottle, lift it into my mouth, swallow it. All these voluntary motions. Wait a minute. What kind of disease is this? Okay. That's interesting. In your mind, you kind of deconstructed the disease model. And that's what you free. Yeah, thanks to a lot of help from reading a lot of good books too, you know, because I'm <laughs> there's a lot of people out there that have deconstructed this model. So I'm I owe a lot to reading good books. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you. <laughs> but you know, your story is not unusual. You know, many people, I mean, many people go to the treatment system and walk away pretty demoralized. I mean, we we have, it's still so monolithic. It's all about God. It's all about the 12 steps. And if you don't fit that mold, people might look you straight in the eye and say, maybe you haven't suffered enough. Mm -hmm. So the suggestion is you should go out and destroy yourself some more, and then maybe you'll be ready for what they have. If you said that, if you... If you want to take addiction seriously as a medical condition, 
please think. No doctor would look at a cancer patient or somebody with, or even a mental illness patient and suggest that the disease has to do more damage before you're ready for help. Now that brings up another interesting point since you mentioned the, you know, mental health and uh, you know, cancer patients. And you know, this is the one area, you know, they don't say it takes a schizophrenic to treat a schizophrenic or it takes a cancer sufferer to treat someone with cancer. No, they don't. And um, the idea that only an addict can understand another addict, well, that all started also in the early 20th century when addicts were being demonized. All of us, you know, the idea that uh, somebody with a heroin habit has to be a liar and a thief and packed full of denial well, guess what? In the mid-19th century, your typical person with an opiate habit was a, was a middle or an upper middle class woman who went to church, made cookies, and um, if you would have said things like that about opiate addicts then, people would have laughed at you. But later, when your typical opiate addict became less white, less middle class, more on the fringe, all of a sudden these stories started to surface. So now we have a, an addiction culture where addicts are perceived as these weird people with very special powers. You know, you'll hear things say, I can see through your lies. I'm presuming that the person is a liar even though you haven't met that person. Mm -hmm. Or you can't con a con, which is obviously nonsense. I mean, anybody can be conned. But we have... Drug addiction is mystified. Mystified in such a big way. And drug addicts are, in a sense, mystified. It's supposed to be this weird magic thing that only another addict can understand. Well, I'm an addict, and I tell you, we have no special powers. I don't have any special superhuman insight just because of um, the addiction that I had. Sure, there's affinity. So somebody who's been where I've been might understand a few things. But um, an outside observer sometimes has a better point of view simply because he or she isn't so wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was kind of uh, amazed when I was, you know, trying out 12-step meetings and things, and these people, you know, they acted like they could read my mind. And, it's and like, if you said something that was inconsistent with what they believed, you were in denial. You know, and I had a huge problem because one of the things that I was supposed to say, you know, in treatment or in AA meetings both, I was supposed to say that I was a pathological liar. <laughs> well... You know, this has not been my problem throughout my life history, whether I was a drunk or not a drunk. I would tell people the truth. I had no tact was the mm -hmm. problem. I was a pathological truth teller. Yeah. And, you know, I would screw myself completely, you know, by saying to the boss, you know, I, I think you're full of shit, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was okay. just. Well, you know, you know, Ken, the whole phenomenon of denial is another thing that's blown out of proportion and demystified. See, all addicts are said to practice denial. Now, there might be some truth to that, but let's, let's get some perspective. First of all, many drug addicts and many alcoholics admit right to your face that they are addicted. They don't deny it. Mm -hmm. So denial doesn't happen to all addicts, one. Two, denial is not a special thing that is specific to addiction. It is a natural human reaction. For example, if you have a child at the age of two, who has some kind of a disability, 
when you first see the first warning signs, you might not want to see it. You might be in denial because this is hard to accept. It might take a bit of work for you to finally accept that. So yeah, you practice a bit of denial because this is a tough reality. So yes, people do practice denial, but not it's not this special thing that only addicts do. Human beings of all stripes practice denial to varying degrees. And there's nothing special about addiction and its relationship to denial. That's just another thing that's been blown out of proportion. And it allows the treatment industry to um, do a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of hocus pocus. If you haven't been there, you can't understand these scenes. Mm -hmm. So only we can, because we have special insight. Mm -hmm. Not a real medical degree, but I was drunk for 30 years, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry, that doesn't cut it. Yeah, you know, Bill Miller did some interesting research. Well, he did a lot of interesting research. Yes. But when he was developing motivational interviewing, he found that, you know, the more you confronted people, the more denial you got. And the more you accepted them, the less denial you got. <laughs> yes. That's, that's, that's perfectly true. And um, if you, if it is in your interest to see lots and lots of denial, confrontation would be a way to generate that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there would be a self-fulfilling prophecy there for mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, until recently, that's how people were taught how to do treatment. Mm-hmm. Confrontation, um, breakdown therapy was popular about until about 20 years ago. Do you know what that is? Um, is that, is that uh, when they put the guy in the middle of the circle and everybody else at them? Well, you can put you in the middle of a circle. But the bottom line is just what it sounds like, breakdown. They break down every shred of ego you have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they want to rip you apart. And then when you're flat on the floor, pathetic, squirming, try to rebuild you from scratch. But that kind of emotional violence does not help people. It makes them worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would take it back to the whole idea about hitting bottom. Think about how if a working girl who's already been raped and beaten says that she's not ready to kick Somebody might say, well, maybe you haven't hit your bottom yet. I don't care how nicely you try to sugarcoat it. The suggestion there is that this person needs a, a worse beating, a worse rape, more beatings, more rape, and that that's somehow going to convince her to get clean and become a good citizen and a decent mom. There's something really wrong with that whole message. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, my experience, I've worked in needle exchange off and on. I'm working in needle exchange again these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we find there is when you are kind to people and you give them this needle and just say, we don't want you to get a disease. We just want you to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. And you don't ask anything else of people. You see people, you know, after they've engaged with you for a period of time, weeks, months, and then they'll come up and say, you know, I don't think I want to shoot heroin anymore. Is there something you can do to help me? And, you know, being kind yeah. to people can motivate them to change. Sure. Meet people on their own terms. And then they will um, start to connect with 
the caring professions with authority figures? Yes. If we don't meet them on their own terms, they're just going to run and hide. Absolutely, you know. I mean, quite a quite a few of the participants we deal with at Lower East Side Harm Reduction, where I work my day job, you know, mm-hmm. they uh, they're homeless. They won't engage with housing agencies. Uh, they won't engage with any of these agencies because they've been burned and burned so many times in the past. But they'll engage with us, and yeah. eventually they'll they will accept the services from us. Yep. And that's. You know, you're part of a really fantastic process, Ken, because it's the way of the future. It's coming. Certain conservative elements might be able to slow it down here and there, but it's on the horizon. We have to do this because we have to stop the spread of infection. We have to do this because we can no longer support our ridiculous criminal justice system. Too many people are in jail who shouldn't be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's face it, the taxpayer is paying for that. That's a lot of money. And we're at the point now where we can no longer afford it. The mm. war on drugs is just too bloody expensive in dollars and cents and in bodies. So slowly but surely, we're emerging out of it. Yeah, we have to do it because this is the moral thing to do. To hurt people just because they use substances is completely immoral. I to agree. Be, to be kind I, to them is the only moral thing to do. I agree. You know, it's not even about agreeing with somebody's behavior, but just losing the punishing attitude, losing the judgmental attitude. It makes for a more sensible and a more practical approach to the whole thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think we're coming to the end of the show. So what would you like to leave us with this evening? What I'd like to leave you with, well, I've got another book coming out. I could leave you with that. That's a good thing. I'm writing a the, the book is called Dealing with an Addict, What You Need to Know If Someone You Care For Has a Drug or Alcohol Problem. And um, then there, I ripped the whole tough love culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But now I'll leave you with a thought. I'm a strong critic of tough love. So, I've already gone through some of my reasons, but I will leave you with this one thought. If we grant that love has many facets, kindness, respect, connectedness, the occasional hard nose, yeah, the toughness, why is it that one dimension, the tough dimension, gets singled out for extra billing? Tough love. Mm-hmm. Why does if even if love does contain that, why is that one facet of love highlighted as though it's the main player? Doesn't that paint the picture? Yeah, it just doesn't. I don't think there is such a thing, really. I don't know that there is such a thing as tough love. It's just. Oh, there I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. <laughs> I mean, love is a gentle emotion. It's the gentlest emotion. I, mean, I was just for the sake of argument throwing that out there. Yeah. I mean, if you're a sadist and you want to hurt somebody and have an excuse to get away with it, seems like tough love would be something that you would invent. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, you might want to talk to somebody like Maya Salovitz about um, some of the things that are being done to teenagers. Oh, yeah, I did... Uh... I did an interview with uh, Maya Zalovitz, actually for Lower East Side. It's on our documentary film. It's called oh, Tra- good. It's called Transformation: The Alchemy of Harm Reduction. It's on YouTube. You can watch yeah. it for free. It's an hour-long documentary. It, it's actually really good. We have Maya Zalovitz, Ethan Nadelman, Stanton Peel, Andrew Tatarski, Scott Kellogg, and then we had all of our our employees. Oh, I got to ch- I got to check that one out. Yeah, and then we had all of our employees at our agency demonstrating these harm reduction interventions, you know, in practice, how they actually work. Oh, that's fantastic. Good job. Yeah, I was it was I was very fortunate to get these people. <laughs> well, we're going to call this, we're going to bring the show to a close, so I want to okay. invite everyone back next week. Our guest will be Kenneth uh, Pecoraro, it's a, it's a new name to me, Kenneth Pecoraro, who's written a book about the escalator instead of the 12 steps. So should be very interesting. And I want to thank you, uh, Peter Frenzy, for being our guest this evening. Uh, thank you for having me. And good night, everyone. We'll see you next week.